Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey, while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is the Great Birth Rebellion. Hello and welcome back to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast for episode four. I'm Melanie Jackson and I'm here with B again and we are joined by a guest today. But before I introduce her, B, I need to tell you about how the podcast has been trending. At the time of recording this, we're sitting at sixth place in the Apple podcast rankings. Boom. And I don't know how it happens. I don't know how you get a rank but anyway if everyone could keep listening and liking and I don't know subscribing all those things that you do with the podcast I guess we could keep rising in the ranks yeah so, so anyway. thank you for listening though and thanks for all the love we've had a lot of love yes. um we've had a lot of love so much love thank you. all right so today uh in today's episode we have Professor Hannah Darlin with us and if you heard episode one and probably episode two and look let's be honest probably episode three we've we probably mentioned Hannah Darlin every single episode so we brought her to you now I've described her as my midwifery mama and I haven't asked her for her bio intentionally because I'm gonna try and introduce her based on what I know okay here we go so Professor Hannah Darlin is professor of midwifery at Western Sydney University she probably releases a research paper approximately every hour and a half or so. And she has lectured in midwifery before, presents everywhere, all over the world, all the time, is the mother of four children, two of which are very much alive and beating and doing amazing things in the world. And she's got an order of Australia, right? Oh, have I missed anything, Hannah? No, no, that's more than enough. <laughs> Amazing. I think the reason you've heard so much about her in a podcast is she, you have, she, I'm talking about you like you're not here, you've been incredibly um, fundamental in um, guiding us both on our midwifery learnings and careers. So we're both um, very grateful for you in what you do for everyone, but selfishly what you've enabled um, us to be able to do with ourselves as well, which I know, you know, is very much us as well, but you were a big, big guide for both of us and, and we adore you and the work you've done. But I, but I saw the spark in both of you day one and, and I was saying to a colleague the other day, my next 10 years, because I'll probably retire in 10 years, but my next 10 years are to produce another 20 activists. So that's my dedication to you all. I want 20 activists out there in the world before I retire. I'll be number one. B can be number two. Yeah, and that's right. And it's a lot. Made. made. We need new, new freshies. We need new ones. We are pretty excited to have you on today because we think this is really important to have as a early podcast um, that people could come back to is how to understand research. Um, and so we thought this would be epic to put it in right at the beginning so people could have that. So thank you for your time today. We yeah. really appreciate it. Thank yeah. You. So today we're talking about, well, we've got Hannah here, but for a specific topic. And we're talk, we, you know, in this podcast, we talk a lot about the research and the literature. And as a researcher and academic myself, and as you would know, Hannah and B, 
we know how to find, identify, research and apply it. But we're keen in this episode to explore how everyone else can, how clinical midwives, childbirth educators, doulas, women, birthing families and other birth workers, how do they find it? How can they read it, interpret it and use it to assist them in their decisions? Yeah, because we have access to a university library with free journal articles and everything. So I guess my first question to you is, have you got any advice on how people without access to a university database can find good quality research evidence? Yeah, so that's really, really important because not everyone has access to a library database, but also not anyone, everyone can make sense of it. There are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of publications out there and not all publications are equal. So at a, at a high level externally, there are some extremely good um, sites that synthesise evidence really well. Um, Rebecca Decker, I love her evidence-based um, productions. Childbirth Connection is absolutely fantastic as well. They put out some really good stuff for consumers that's in everyday language. Cochrane Database, so Cochrane's all about the systematic reviews, but it also produces a, um, a version for consumers that's not so technical and um, hard to, to grasp. Um, Raising Children in Australia is a very good website that I edit. In fact, I edit a lot of their content and they produce some really good information, little videos and all sorts of things. So that's another good place to go. Uh, and then after that, of course, there are great individuals like, you know, the podcast you guys do and many other people now are in the podcast world. And interestingly, from the BEST survey, which is this big um, survey of Australian women's birth experiences, where when we look at what women list as where they go for information, in fact, podcasts have come up as one of the top things that women are getting their information from. And in fact, Corin Floor, Bernie, as mentioned in there. So we'll be able to give you the stats on that. So podcasts mm -hmm. are becoming a new way of women being able to access good information, but then it all depends who's behind that podcast and mm -hmm. what their level of knowledge is and motivation that might influence that. Yeah. So then it, what about the, um, sorry, no, I was just going to say something you didn't mention because I know you write a lot for the conversation oh, yes. and I know in the conversation too, the articles are often linked. Um, yes. There's often a hyperlink. Is that because the, the article has free access or yes. is that because it is? And maybe we just need to explain what that is for, yeah. for so listeners. The, con the conversations are really fantastic. Um, seven to eight hundred words written. So what it is, it's a collaboration between academics and journalists. So you have to have a PhD to write for the conversation. A lot of people don't realise that or be enrolled in a PhD. And you write your, you know, academic spiel and then the journalists take it and they put it into average age of 12-year-old reading and they keep coming back to you and going, what do you mean by this? So if you put something down like, you know, the, the rate of vacuum extractions increase, I'll go, what do you mean by this? Explain what vacuum extraction is. And then all the way through the article, we put hyperlinks in. So you can actually click if you want to go further and get to the original data set, you can actually click on it and you can go into the original data set. So it's in a very good because it's double, it's got academic and it's got journalistic approach which makes it accessible and accurate 
Mm-hmm. So does that mean you can only use articles in there that are free to access? And so what They're we mean by free. free to access is some articles are open to the public, meaning any person can find them and have access to them, but other articles you have to pay for or have a subscription to an online library or database. Have I explained that properly? But first of all, mm-hmm. conversation is open to everyone, and the great thing about it is you don't have to have permission to replicate it. Anyone can replicate it in uh, any website. Media sometimes take a whole article and just publish it. So it is free and open, which is one of the greatest things about it. It's also translated into many languages. It's also in many countries. So there's many versions of it. Open access is a peer-reviewed journal article that uh, uh, researchers have to pay for to get published, which means that the public can access it because what normally happens if it's not open access is all you get is the abstract. Then you have to go if you have a library access to try and get it. So open access is fantastic because it enables consumers to access it, um, but it's also very expensive and there's a whole debate going on now that says that really researchers should be the servants of the public and community because the government everyone you guys fund us so why are we not actually making it open to everybody so that we have full transparency and access so there's huge debates going on yeah that's the big problem isn't it is that in order to get access to the actual research that a lot of these platforms use to inform their articles If they're open access and the actual author themselves has paid to make it open access, people can get a full copy of that original research. Whereas if if the author hasn't paid, then the journal makes their money off people paying for licenses to access it or for people paying an individual fee to access that journal article. They make most of their money, Mel, off universities having to pay to access their articles so others can access articles that's where the majority of money is yes and so then I guess for people to get reputable information you want the person producing it to have access to a lot of full text articles that are technically free so somebody who's connected with the university that has access to those full journal articles yeah and then that raises another issue though some of them to be frank and I've written many um, are are boring. They're boring as batshit, let's let's be honest, because there are requirements as an academic and a researcher to put great detail into your methods. So if you if if we just briefly outline what a research article will contain, it will contain an abstract, which is usually a summary of around 200 to 350 words, which will tell you briefly what the study did and what the study found. Then it will have a background saying, why are we doing this study? What's the state of the research? It will then have a method section, which will detail and the better it details it, the more you can trust it. How they did it, who they included, who didn't participate etc etc so that you can trust the research and then you have a result section which tells you what you found then you have a discussion which takes what you found and puts it in relationship to what already exists and then shows where the new knowledge is and where to go in the future so that's in a kind of nutshell what a research paper is and what most people do is they read the abstract And I always say to my students, the most important part of a paper is the methods. 
because it's in the method to find out whether or not you're dealing with really rigorously done accountable research. But if you are not an academic, reading some of those methods is like reading, I don't know, Sanskrit or something. It's it's completely um, mind-boggling. So that's why we then need to take that information and do things like explain it through podcasts, explain it through short articles, explain it through conversation articles, because otherwise it's it's almost unintelligible to most people, especially when you're and dealing with statistics. So there is a way to find that out, that you don't need to be a biostatistician to be confident that what you're reading is well done. And this is where things like impact factors in journals and quartiles are fundamental for you understanding quality. And a lot of people don't realise. So, for example, this year I published a paper in The Lancet with Swedish colleagues. Now, it'll probably be the only paper I ever have will ever publish in The Lancet just because because getting published in the Lancet is like, it's almost like, you know, the, the, the golden chalice or whatever. So it has an impact factor of over 75. The highest midwifery journal, which is actually Women and Birth in Australia, has an impact that now has gone over three. So just to give you an idea, but there are many journals out there with impact factors of less than one. Now, what is an impact factor? An impact factor is the amount of times that article is cited um, by the papers within a year for that journal. So it tells you how influential it is. The more influential a, paper, a, a, a journal becomes, the harder it is to get published. When we published in The Lancet, we had about eight different people doing reviews on our paper. It went back to editors, there was multiple responses, multiple questions. In some places, and this is where we then get into the territory of predatory journals, they just accept it without any reviews. They don't do any peer review. So the level of quality oversight from the Lancet compared to some journals is huge. Then the next way you know quality is looking at quartiles. And all of the quality journals are divided into four quartiles. So we have Q1, which means the top 25% of journals in the world in your discipline. Q2, top 50, et cetera, et cetera. So they go down in 25 percentiles. So then you might be thinking, well, how the hell do I find out where to get that? Well, one of the easiest things people do is go to a database called Skimago, which is S-C-I-M-A-G-O. It's totally available to the public. Google Scamago, put in your journal, and it will tell you what's the impact factor and what's the quartile. It will also show you exactly what the quality level is, etc. And another heads up, if it ain't in Scamago, it's a predatory journal. Yes, and I wanted to yeah. ask you about, because predatory journals, that's something I wanted to, uh, it's a question I had for you, and this ties in with quality. So anyone can create a journal and publish papers in that journal and they are literally called predatory journals mm -hmm. because they usually have an ulterior agenda that they're potentially peddling. And we saw a lot of this during COVID, people trying to get their message out through predatory journals. And then to the unknowing eye, yeah. uh, they look at this, this research paper that looks like science and they go, oh, my gosh, see? You know, it's true. All these things that I've been thinking are true. It's science. 
but actually they're predatory. So can you tell us a little bit about these predatory journals and how to identify them? And predatory journals fool the best of the academics as well. So we have whole programs now involved in trying to figure out what is a predatory journal. So essentially, you're right, anyone can set up a journal. They can type it out, make it look really pretty. They can even put up an editorial board and you'll look at the editorial board and you think, oh, they come from very prestigious universities. Many of those are fake. They don't even know they're being listed as editorial board. They will often offer you very low open access fees. For example, a normal open access fee can be anything up to $5,000 to get an article published. They'll offer you $350, but they'll want the money up front. They don't send it out for, for proper peer review. When you look at journal articles that come from it, they're often got typos in it. Um, you won't find it on Scamago, you won't find it on Web of Science, you won't find it on Scopus, you will find there's no impact factor or very, very, very low and they're, they're Q, Q1, there will never be a Q1 ranking on them. So they can sound very legitimate. Now, I wake up every morning to about between 5 to 10 invitations for me to publish in predatory journals and the more flowery they are when they start calling me precious esteemed very knowledgeable and honorable professor the more they put those words in the more you know that they are absolutely problematic often and they go through to your junk mail mostly yeah. right I mean I oh, do the well, same thing <laughs> I remember the first time I got pub, like when I published and I was just like oh my goodness all these people around the world want my paper and then I just started ignoring it and then one day so um, Professor Carolyn Homer was my supervisor for my honours and I mentioned it to her and she was like, just ignore them. Ignore just them. ignore them and delete them. So I published in 2014 and eight years later I'm still getting them. And I've been asked to write on my incredible expertise on astronautic engineering and on equine surgery and on, uh, you know, facial uh, oral surgery. So they don't even bother. They just literally scatter it out there and hope they pick some person up. And we've had students that have published in there for their PhDs, and that's really, really problematic. Um, it catches people all the time. And then there's predatory conferences, which are also full of trying to get your money, but actually nobody of quality is going. They'll make it sound like it's got these wonderful keynotes coming. They're not coming. So it's, a, it's getting harder and harder and harder now to figure out the quality, which is why I come back to what's the impact factor, what's the quartile, and is it in Scamago? Um, that's really, really key to finding out whether you're dealing with something genuine. And, you know, when we had COVID, you're right, Mel, we had um, lots of anxiety over vaccinations, understandably, because it was came in so fast. And you then had people setting up journals completely dedicated to um, putting forth uh, misinformation about vaccines, which then everybody on the side of being very um, vaccine hesitant spread through social media. And then that went everywhere. And then people started to think this was genuine information. And it's it's very problematic. Mm, yes. And so I guess too, and I will put up all of the all of the websites and things that Hannah was talking about, I will put in the um, email that I send. We have a mailing list and every week after each episode, I send people the um, the links and any research papers that we've talked about will come out. So if you're not on the mailing list, if you want to get the links that Hannah's talking about and the websites and all the things, I will put them in the email 
and you can access those as well. So that's how we identify a good quality journal. And this is handy because if women are getting information from their care provider and if they go so far as to ask, you know, for the actual paper that their care provider got this information from, then women and families can actually cross-check across these websites that that information is actually coming from good quality journals because I think midwives and doctors and care providers actually fall into the trap too because a lot of people don't realise but once you go into practice as a clinician and you've left university if you don't continue to study you they don't have access to full text journal articles either so they're only just getting the same exact access to information that anybody in the public is getting so you know be interesting for women and families to actually quiz their care provider on where they got that information from that they're that they're telling them about i think women and families and care providers search for journals. And I want to talk about search terms. Mm. So because there's a real skill and talent to actually finding the information that you're looking for. And I think it lies with good search terms. Mm -hmm. So can you talk to us about search terms? Because that new, that term, that wording would be completely new to a lot of people. So if you were an academic, you would follow a very different process to if you are not an academic. So in an academic sense, we have got databases um, that we actually do searches with structured terms. We add terms together. We um, do a little abbreviations of terms. We will also put in the years we want to look at. We will put in the type of research we want to look at. So that's called a systematic way of searching the literature. But for the... When we're talking about terms, we're just talking about words, I think, to make it... Yeah, so we're talking about, so let's say you want to look up what is going on with induction of labour. Should I I go and have this induction of labour at 40 weeks that I'm being pressured into? So you type into Google induction of labour and and some very good stuff may come up. Mixed between that is going to be um, blogs and people's posts and journal articles. So there'll be a mixture going on there so you have to kind of weave between it so so government websites reputable websites would be where you would really focus your your energy on so you would probably put in induction of labor and that would probably capture an awful lot of things you might want to add in induction of labor at 40 weeks and you might get some probably specific stories and and information so the other thing that people often use is abbreviated terms like IOL, academics will use terms like IOL, but you don't have to worry too much about that. So Google, if, if that's all you've got access to, um, Google or Google Scholar is even going to take you up then to get published papers, but it will pick up also, Google Scholar can pick up predatory journals in that, whereas other databases like Scopus and Publons and Web of Science and um, Schemago will always be dealing with the more legitimate articles. Mm. And so you might have to go to individual websites and then search yes. your individual term there rather than just doing a big Google search. So perhaps so, let's say you were going to search in Cochrane Database of Systematic Reviews, yes. you would go to the Cochrane Database website and you'd have to search specifically in there to find. And you would see the little magnifying glass up the top 
and you would type in and you might not. There's also the Cochrane database is divided up into pregnancy articles, on surgery, pediatrics, neonatal. So you can also go into the area and they will also list all of the reviews So you can in alphabetical order. So you can also go down the reviews and look at where you, you know, what is the particular thing you're interested in. But, you know, sometimes they don't use the term that you think is a term that they're going to use. That's the problem. And this is where these articles like these um, places like evidence-based birth and, um, you know, articles like that are written in the conversation are so key for the everyday person who isn't, um, you know, doesn't live in academia land to be able to be like, right, this is the best evidence. I trust this person or this this has come from a really reputable source. They've summarised it because often these sites like, you know, with the articles you write for the conversation, they're written in language that 12-year-olds can understand for a reason so that we can get the best of the research but understand it. Because a lot of this, even our conversation today, it's too big for people. Like, you know, it's like, and, and there's so much going on when, a you know, a person is pregnant in their lives anyway. They're often renovating or selling a house and trying to work and looking after other children. It, it can be big. And so people want the best quality information hard and fast. When people have to make these big decisions around induction, especially often it's around induction people are looking for or around GBS um, or even in the early postpartum days, like, you know, baby weight loss, stuff like that, they need it and they need it quickly because they may have been told, right, we need to book you for an induction come back tomorrow, have some monitoring and we'll go from there. They often need it quite quickly. And so this is where those um, sites can be really great for people to get that. So the other place that I reached out to recently was the National Library. Hang on, I'm looking it up now. The National Library of Australia. And I asked them, you know, what kinds of things can people get access to? If I was a clinician without access to the the amazing university databases and they gave a lot of great feedback about how much we can access so I think there seems to be a lot through the National Library of Australia and that's free as well for anybody in Australia so you can look into that if you really want to look at primary research sources and the other thing that I think people don't realize that if you find a research article that you can see the abstract and you're interested in reading more but you know, the journal's selling it for $50 and you'd sort of think, oh gosh, I don't know if I can do that. It's also possible to just email the author. Mm. And so if somebody emailed me and said, hey, can I have a copy of your journal article? It's easy. We've all got PDFs of it. You send an email and there it is. So that's a top tip too. Usually the author's email address is on the research paper and they're usually very happy that someone's actually reading their research and so would be happy to send you the full text. So that's a top tip as well from me. Yeah, people are very happy that you've read time. our research. Yeah, I'm always yes. like, someone read something that I wrote? It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I'll send you. You want more information? Sure. Yeah, that's um, what I do. I've I've been so um, self-absorbed at times where I'm like, here, have my PhD. If you want to read my journal article, of course you want to read the thesis. So, you know. <laughs> Here's 100,000 words extra yeah. on it. <laughs> I know. So don't. Don't be shy. If you want the full text, literally email the, the author and yeah. they probably would be so happy to send it to you for free. 
So I think that's such a top tip for midwives too, because often, you know, we're trying to have, I'll never forget, um, I was working in a publicly funded home birth model and we had a new uh, obstetrician come and start with us. And uh, part of the model was that they the women needed to see an obstetrician at 36 weeks to be approved for home birth, right? And I turned up to this appointment. I'd never met the doctor. We walked in and he turned around to this woman and he said, why are you having a home birth? The rates of... Um, death at home birth are the same as for women having twins and breach and I was sitting there like just in absolute shock like I I think I just went into I'm a freezer like flight fright or freeze like I freeze and I was like I've seen I've seen myself do it with a brown snake didn't turn oh. out too well um so, <laughs> I'm a fighter you know, I'm, hey? I'm a fighter I've, I I, my instant reaction is to freeze and I sat there and I was like what is happening here and this woman was incredible she just sat there and went mm-hmm, mm-hmm, thank you I still want my home birth and then I was like I know the information you've given is incorrect um so I'm gonna go away and do some research and then I'm gonna come back and um you know it was very um it was, you know, I didn't, I was like, how can I now get this research? Because I wasn't studying at the time. Um, and luckily, like the place of birth studies were all were all free to access. So it was really easy. Anyway, I ended up coming back and I, I emailed him. I gave him all this research. He read it and he became our biggest advocate for publicly funded home birth. It was amazing. The relationship him and I had was incredible. Every midwife in that team only took women, only booked in an appointment for women to see him because they knew that appointment would be super easy he would be super supportive and it was this incredible turnaround where he like trusted home birth and and it was all because he, he was able to access the research I was able to access the research so if you are having those beautiful conversations with um, your colleagues and you're trying to change practice or implement new policy or change you know the way you work that's a great tip that if you can't access it email the author um, I think a lot of people that are going to listen to this podcast are going to be midwives that are in the system and want to change things so um, I think these are really great tips for them to have today the other thing I really wanted to ask Mel if it's um have you got any other questions that you want to go with first because what I really wanted to ask Hannah but uh, my question here was around you know we often get that um a disagreement with the research right and so what I can yeah. see here is women or midwives taking the research to their care providers and then what the response is is well you can find research to support anything or that e- evidence isn't true and what I was getting was midwives saying there's limitations and there's bias so this can't be true this po- this can't possibly be true I work in the private section and and this is what I see you know so what is published isn't true now that take on it was you know they were being offended and saying that what I I think what they were assuming was I was saying you can't have a beautiful physiological birth in the private setting which of course you can what the research shows is that that chance is less so what do we do with that right in terms of if you're a woman or a midwife how do you then come back which I you know obviously is what we've already talked about with the impact factor and looking at the quality of the research but I think what often happens is people take their little spiel because that's all they've got They've read it on a website. They know this. They believe in it. And then it's like, bang, they're shut down. That's not true. Or this paper says this and this is better. 
Yeah. So that's not, you know, we don't agree with that, for example. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I deal with trolls all the time because I'm very active on social media and uh, it was very interesting when we published, a, actually I have published two Lancet things. Um, we published a second Lancet paper this year and it was a commentary and it was called, you know, midwifery is the answer to the wicked problems in the world. And wicked, which is a term that is well known within healthcare, which are those difficult problems to solve. So, yeah, obesity, uh, smoking, you know, these difficult problems to solve. And so we wrote this editorial. We wrote it with, you know, the president of ICM, a fantastic doctor from the United States, a wonderful African uh, researcher and a consumer. So we thought, you know, we had it very well balanced. It was all evidence-based, all reference, but it didn't matter because those who had had birth damage um, and they are obviously it's very sad when that happens to women. They were really angry that the answer was midwifery and that, you know, physiological support and birth, you know, birth was optimal if we could get that for women. And so what I found fascinating, of course, I mentioned continuity care all the time. What I found fascinating was that the discourse coming from them was, well, the continuity care research is rubbish. It's yeah. no good. It's um, all been disproven. Um it's, you know, you, it's absolutely wrong. It's, you know, basically it was just the dismissal of, of the data, which is level one evidence. So level one evidence is systematic reviews of randomised controlled trials, which is the highest level of evidence. That's what Cochrane is publishing. Mm-hmm. And continuity midwifery care has endorsement not only from the Cochrane, it has WHO endorsement, um, pretty much every health department around the world. So it's widely seen as the gold standard. And I, I went back to one of these people who was go, carrying on with it, and I just said, so can I just check something? The Cochrane, the BBJOG, the Lancet, uh, BMJ, uh, WHO, the UN, all of the, the, the major discipline bodies and government and health departments are all wrong. But you're right. And it didn't go down well, may I say. It didn't go down well at all. But there comes a point in that discussion, what I was trying to highlight is that that might be your opinion, but there's a stack of very strong evidence here in the people who, who are supporting this for public policy. Sometimes all you can do with that sort of attitude is to mute or block them. Uh, it's all you can do because they're not they're not going to want that they don't want their mind changed they're 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 deeply entrenched some of them are deeply damaged and they need to prove their point because somehow it gives validity to what is the hardest thing here is I mean I don't I for me it didn't matter but it's it's when women get this with their care provider or yes. colleagues get this with their head of obstetrics, yeah. you know, like where when midwives listening to this are like, yeah, I've been trying to change this. And it's just like, you know, I can even remember um, working with somebody, working with a uh, obstetrician when I was trying to introduce warm compress. And I was like, you know, Hannah Darlin's got this study and he was like, well, no one likes Hannah. And I was like, <laughs> Oh, oh I know so that that's is. that's your yeah, I know you know who that is. That's like <laughs> that's your evidence-based <laughs> argument for warm compress packs no on the perineum to decrease third and fourth <sighs> degree hand tears is no one likes hammer. Right. This is where we're at, right? Because a lot of the time it is, it's ego and power. It is. And yes. so I think I what I really want to put out here for, for women listening to this that are pregnant and trying to take evidence, and for midwives, is we've really got to 
own it. Own that um, what we believe in is true. It is legitimate. It does have epic evidence. And to keep fighting and to recognize that if your care provider or your colleague isn't agreeing with it, then it, then what they're doing is they're putting their blindfolds on. But, you know, I think what this also highlights is that our practice, and Mel and I were talking about this, what, one of the reasons we one of the things we wanted to talk about, our practice is often, what, 18 to 20 years behind evidence. Is that what we're still seeing now? It still takes about 17 years to get evidence into practice. Yeah. So if you're reading our stuff, if you're listening to our podcast, you're watching my free antenatal classes, you're seeing our stuff on Instagram, you're reading evidence-based birth, and what it is saying is not aligning with what you're being provided with in your care or what you're able to provide in your practice because you're working in the system. This is why right? And it's huge. So we've got this incredible research coming out, but we're not going to see a change until 2039, right? In what yeah, we're publishing we are, we now. Are really I just have to do the math to, there. We're trying to speed that up. And so now academics can't just any longer say, I've got this great research idea, give me money. They have to say, I've got this great research idea, no one else has done it, here's the evidence. If you give me money, I am going to also put in a plan which will sh- which will lead to implementation of that and translation and impact. So this is the huge motivation now in academia that we can't just produce the research and hope that somebody else puts it into place. We actually have to have a plan for implementation and translation. And we have to show in our careers impact. In other words, what did your research do to change outcomes? Just going back to that conversation about you go to someone with information and they just dismiss it. First of all, anyone who dismisses outright, be very suspicious of. The good practitioners, regardless of what they believe or how much they've read of the evidence, will very objectively and in an unbiased way say, well, what's most important at the end of the day is what is important to you. This is what the best evidence tells us. But, of course, this is based on a certain kind of population. This is possible alternatives and strategies, and here are the pros and the cons. But at the end of the day, it's your choice. What is it that you really want How now that you have listened to all of that information about your specific case? Because evidence has never been about beating people over the head with a stick. Evidence is a useful tool to give people advice, but the ultimate decision maker is always the woman. Mm-hmm. Regardless of whether she wants to hang off the chandelier and have twins upside down, at the end of the day, if she can find a chandelier that's strong enough to do that with, then that's her choice. Sorry. Describe what you were talking about, B, where people, you know, there's you can find evidence to support every single argument. There's this, um, uh, it's called confirmation bias where basically if you have an opinion or a feeling or, you know, about something, then you will only seek and recognise information that actually feeds feeds your bias and you'll dismiss all other information. And so... And that means that your practitioner is not being a reflective practitioner and they're actually clinging to their own long-standing opinions on something and only acknowledging research that will support their existing opinion rather than allowing research to change their opinion. And yeah, like- and confirmation bias is something we all have. 
If you send me a list of articles, I'm naturally going to click on the ones that most align to what I'm interested in. So we all have it. So the first thing we need to do is say we all have it. But the problem is if you become so entrenched in your own confirmation and only look at articles that reinforce your confirmation, then what we lead to the next step of confirmation bias is polarisation. And then the next step of polarisation is where you hunker down with like-minded people and you all develop conspiracy theories and, you know, all become, you know, everybody else is wrong and we're right. And then the third part of that is radicalisation. And if you look at some of the stuff happening in the United States at the moment, you can clearly see what happens when groups just hunker down, become deeply paranoid and stay firm to their belief system, regardless of the external evidence that is telling them this is possibly not the right way to go. Mm. And I think, you know, warning signs when you are being cared for are dismissive comments, um, you know, that you see from from care providers and you can see it in in the yeah. words that they use and the behavior that they hold and so you know I, I guess what I want to offer to people here is if you do see that um just you know know that what we've talked about today in terms of optimal care is that really compassionate conversation where we go yeah I hear you I hear this is a big thing for you let's look at it let's look at the alternatives but if you've just given you know you've given a statement like oh your baby's going to die which you know so many women hear so often unnecessary um and it isn't evidence-based and we're not seeing changes in babies you know dying with all the things that we're doing which is I think is the really frustrating thing like so much of what we do isn't evidence-based and seen as beneficial like you know routine vaginal examinations there is you know there's no good evidence there around them being beneficial but we still do them so so much of what we do isn't evidence-based and we just do it and what we're seeing what we're not seeing is an improvement in outcomes and what we are seeing is actually an increase in birth trauma without um, changes in mortality which is death rates and we're actually seeing increase in morbidity in terms of physical morbidity and emotional morbidity um and so i think in terms of red flags you know and and being able to really stay true in what you've learned and what you believe in and what is important to you is having that confidence but this stems greater in you know how women are in the system because a lot of systems there's that hierarchy and that authoritarianism and so and what we grow up believing about and what is ingrained in us in terms of doctors and trusting the hierarchy and and trusting you know, people that are in positions of power, which is, you know, we talk about women-centred care, but it's extreme. I don't honestly believe in a system women-centred care can can truly be given because of the power and how so many women, you know, I say to people, how do you feel around your care provider? Do you feel completely safe and comfortable and like you can say anything or do you feel intimidated and scared and like you have to behave yourself? You know, that whole good girl syndrome really plays out in our maternity care system so often and so what I really want to give to people here is if it feels right for you and feels important for you be really alert and curious around how you respond and and how you're responded to with what comments you're responded to and I think also what's really important if I could get one message through to women is that no means no And nobody can make you do anything. It is illegal to make you do anything. And if someone gives you all of this information, let them rant, let them rant, and then say, thank you very much for taking the time to explain that to me, but I decline. Mm. Simple. End of story. 
Yeah, we and talk so about a full body, yes. So is the brain saying yes? Is the heart saying yes? Is the gut saying yes? Are your reproductive organs saying yes? Mm-hmm. And if one of them is saying no and you're conflicted, or if it's a maybe, it's a no. Um, but so often, having sex with someone. Yeah, it actually, so this full body yes comes from Leo Stone, who I work with, and she talks it, she talks about it around consent. And, and, you know, we're not so much of us, we do, you know, where there's that beautiful book, The Gift of Fear, around where the only mm-hmm. animals that in, um, ignore our instincts based on fear. And mostly it's around fear of what other people think. Like yeah. most of us are good girls and we're people pleasers. And that really plays out in this. So, you know, if if it's not a full body, yes, then it's a no. And a no is, and you can is change, allowed. You can the amount of women that provider. say to me, yeah, the, yeah. The amount of women that say to me, I didn't know I could say no. And that screams to me the language being used by care providers. Because if you don't know that you can't, that if you don't know that you can say no, then it is not the language being offered to you or being said to you is not offering that, you know. And the care being given to you is grooming you basically to believe you have no rights. And that is an insidious problem we have in our society. From day one when we book women in, we basically tell them we're in charge. And then we wonder why they sit back and don't say no to us in the birth room when they're in absolute fear and we've told them saying no is not acceptable. And then down the track have incredible birth trauma because they didn't have that voice. It's huge. It's so unfair. I'm going to bring us. I'm going to bring us back to research for a moment. <laughs> it's a beautiful conversation, and I'm just of that personality type. That's like, no, we're talking about research today. <laughs> so I and I probably just chat for like six hours, which is fine. Which is fine. <laughs> okay, so we talked about how can how can people find good quality research we talked about the quality levels of journals and how folks can identify quality publication over a predatory one and we talked a little bit about search terms and how to find the articles that you're looking for so let's say somebody's found an original piece of research they've got their hands on the full text Uh, how do they read it now I mean for me as a researcher I can I feel like I've, it's a skill that you just develop and you can very quickly scan what parts of the paper you know are important for what you're intending to use it for. But how would a layperson or even, you know, a clinician, a birth worker, doulas, when they get their hands on a paper, well, how do they do it? So the, the first thing that I always do, if this paper is, oh, my gosh, it's confirming everything I believed and I love it, I love it, I love it, I say to myself, I absolutely hate this paper. It's saying the opposite of what I want and I am going to go through this with a fine-tooth comb and I'm going to find every weakness possible in this paper. So as a researcher, I do that. And, and having students is really great because students will will get so passionate, carried away, and then in I come and go, yeah, far too overstated, you need caution, this is a small sample size, this isn't generalizable, et cetera, et cetera. So the method is so important. So some of the things, so, you know, we need to talk about qualitative and quantitative research because yes, let's do that. qualitative research is about 
it's not about measuring. It's about in what we call inductive research. So it is about trying to find out what is important to that person, how does how do people interact, how does language get used, what is underpinning a lot of the things that happen in everyday life. And there are some things you can't ever measure. So I can't measure um, the experience of a woman who has lost a baby well with a quantitative survey but sitting down doing an in-depth interview with her and analysing that is going to give me an idea of a whole lot of things that um, might be in synergy with other women because I'm interviewing several of them. So there's qualitative research. So what was your population? Is it well described? What were your methods? How did you as the researcher bracket or hold your assumptions in this? Reflect on how your biases were hearing what women said, you know, have you been accountable for, you know, everything that you've put in the paper? Is the data trustworthy? Is credible? A whole lot of things, are, you know, that we would look at with quantitative research. So an, I'll give you a prime example, prime example of a trial that swept the world and yet I am still completely mystified by how it did, the ARRIVE trial. Mm-hmm. Yes, so, please tell us everything. Uh, yeah. I was I, in my head. I'm like a ratra, 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 ratra. Yeah. <laughs> so like, it's arrived trial. Yes, let's hear about. It. Okay, so let's hear about the arrived trial, and that's why we set off to do that huge induction of labor study that we published um, last year. With 16 years of all women who've given birth in New South Wales, because I I knew there was something fundamentally problematic. The arrived trial was done as a perfect randomised control trial. It was perfectly done. It was well-funded. It was run um, really well. You can't flaw the design. But what they did is that they randomised women at 39 weeks who were low risk to having an induction of 39 weeks or waiting up to four to five days. So it was a very short period they actually waited afterwards. That that all sounds very good. And the primary outcome was that they wanted to see, did it reduce morbidity for the baby? So were there less problems with APGAR scores? Did they go to intensive care less? Did they die less? You know, a whole lot of things were put together to be called a composite outcome, primary outcome. Secondary was, was a cesarean section rate lowered. When they went to women and asked them to be in the trial, nearly 80% of them said no. Number one issue you've got. What it's telling me is it's not acceptable as an intervention to women. The majority of women don't want to be induced. So the group that said yes, that were part of this big trial, are a different group of women to the group who say no. Women who say yes to induction are not so worried about whether they have a normal birth or not, whether they have intervention in their birth or not. They are a completely different population. So number one about the ARRIVE trial is not generalizable to the full population. The second thing they did was the obstetricians, about 96% of the women were cared for by private obstetricians who all knew the group they were randomised into and obstetricians naturally like induction much better than midwives. So they're more leaning towards that and all think that's a great idea. So it wasn't blinded. Very few had predominantly midwifery care. Then you go and you have a little look at the outcome. So what should have been reported in that case was the primary outcome, which is the baby the damage or, or, or death of the baby, no difference. People have forgotten this. There was no difference 
in the baby outcomes. But there was a difference in the cesarean section rate between about 22% and 18%. So women who were induced had a lower cesarean section rate, which absolutely mystified all of us who, you know, would say that's absolutely the reverse of what happens. First of all, these are the lowest risk women you possibly can get. And they had a cesarean section rate of 22% and 18%. So just let that settle in. Mm. That's a horrendously high cesarean section rate. When the same trial... Just to give a comparison here, we just so people understand how high it is, our cesarean section rate for, now this is, you know, um, bias on the other end, but our cesarean section rate for publicly funded home birth was 1%. Um, now that's the complete other opposite end of the spectrum, right? But that's just but that's low risk showing. There's still low it's risk low, women. It is low risk women. It's low risk women, and the doctors at the time were like, "What are you doing? That's different because yours is so much lower than ours." I think it was around twelve percent the low risk yeah. women in 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 MGP that weren't publicly funded home birth. So yeah, it's a high rate. Mm. When they did the same trials in the Netherlands and in Sweden, which is completely cares completely by midwives and they have low cesarean section rates, there was no difference in the cesarean section rate. They sat at about 11% between both groups and 12%. So that's telling me a lot of things that's telling me about the provider being influential here. It's um, blinded, which, of course, is very hard to blind induction. That means the woman doesn't know what's happening, the provider doesn't know what's happening, and the analysis doesn't know what's happening. You can't do that with induction of labour, and we didn't have a generalisable population. So you've got all these issues. It was a perfectly done randomised control trial. It was published in a very high-ranking journal. But what was absolutely misleading was instead of focusing on the primary outcome, which was there was no difference, no statistical difference between baby outcomes, the worldwide media reporting of it was induction of labour reduces cesarean section. Now, I find it fascinating that doctors aren't really worried about cesarean section until it's an outcome associated with another intervention that they really, really like. So if we can get it across the line and sell it to women, let's sell it on cesarean section. Now, since that time, there's been some big studies done. So one study done in the US has gone pre-arrived trial, post-arrived trial to see whether or not it's having an impact on cesarean section. If you look at what what's happened with implementation, and it's had no impact whatsoever. The cesarean section rate has gone up without a doubt. The Danish also looked at a change in induction of labour policy. They looked at um, the years before they reduced their induction of labour policy down from about 42 weeks to, you know, 41 plus three. So it's nothing like the ARRIVE trial. And they also showed that there was no change in stillbirth, no change in in neonatal outcomes, but there was increase in women with um, uterine infections, et cetera. So that's why we went on to then do our big induction of labour study because we said what happens if you include everybody rather than, the 80% who didn't say yes to the ARRIVE trial, and you look at a low-risk population and you look at 16 years and then you follow those mothers and babies up over 16 years' period, what else is going on? And what we're now finding, and another study was published just the other day, that if you look at stillbirth, definitely stillbirth is reduced with an induction of labour at 39 weeks. If you have a big enough sample size, eventually you're going to get a reduction in stillbirth. The longer a baby stays in, yes, stillbirth rises linearly. 
But if you don't look at perinatal mortality, which is the combination of babies dying before they're born and after they're born, you get a skewed picture. So this big study that was published um, just recently showed that the stillbirth rate was reduced, but the perinatal mortality rate was higher. So when you put it all together, actually more babies died afterwards as a result of all of the interventions than were dying because we were preventing stillbirth. So we went a step further and we said, okay, what happens to admissions in the first 42 days to the mother's outcomes, the baby? And then what happens to all of the A&E admissions to hospital for 16 years after that baby's born? And that's where we showed we are just focusing on the tip of the iceberg. And if we don't give women the full information about what's important then we are absolutely irresponsible and misleading we can't focus on one thing women don't think about one thing women are very complex beings with multiple factors that matter to them I will link that study as well everybody who's on the mailing list will get that study that Hannah was talking about her induction of labor one I'm sure it's open access right <laughs> Ah, uh, yes, this yes. BMJ. Okay, good. I can share it. If not, I know the author. We can email her. I'll email it. it. No, no, it's definitely open. Um, can we just summarise that, though, for those that are trying to, like, get their head around all of that and just be like, hang on, what did I just hear? Mm. You've published a study of 16 years of looking at the data and showed that, yes, induction has reduced stillbirth, but... Induction has actually oh. increased the amount of babies dying when you look at all the deaths overall. Is that no, sorry, the right I'm talking about several studies here. Another study okay. has shown the stillbirth and perinatal mortality. We focused on the baby's outcomes and the mother's outcomes after the birth. Okay. So we focused okay. on admission to special care, episiotomy, hemorrhage, in readmission with infections, ERI, respiratory infections following birth. So that was our focus in the study. Other okay. people looked at perinatal mortality. Um, but the difference between our study and the ERI trial, and this is really important too when we talk about levels of evidence, what they did was a randomised trial, which is the highest level of evidence. What we did is a population-based study, which is a lower level of ed- evidence. But the difference is what we tried to do is to look at what happens in real life. They did a study on experimental conditions. But the problem is in real life, that experiment is very, very different. When you now include the other 80% who said no to the right trial, you're getting different outcomes. Is there a problem then, Hannah, with what we consider to be a high level of evidence not necessarily being applicable in real life and that even though it's a high level of evidence, it's almost, it can be irrelevant to real life situations. So there's two important things when we talk about evidence. One is its clinical significance and one is its statistical significance. So one is you set parameters and you say, if it reaches this level of difference, we will call it statistically different. If you have 100,000 people in a study, you might get a statistical difference But in all reality, it might be 0.01% different. So we would say that's not clinically significant. So randomized trials are good because what they do is they randomly allocate people to treatment groups. So you should have the same people in each group. And then if you've got the same people in each group, the only thing that's different should be the treatment. And then you can look at the outcomes objectively. When you look at a whole population, you've got people making choices to do. So women who choose home birth 
and birth sense, very different to women who choose private obstetricians on the whole, if we make a general discussion. So you're dealing with different populations. So one is about treatment effect. The other is about well, what happens in real life. And so you need both of those answers to be able to come up with a recommendation that's based on the full picture. But we, we worship at the feet of the randomised controlled trial. But whether or not people are going to in real life take that up, whether they're actually going to find it acceptable needs to be discovered in another way. Mm -hmm. So there's not one way of finding out. So there's not one way of finding out evidence and all evidence has limitations and every individual in the end of the day needs to be able to make a decision that feels right for them, which might be very different to the person next to them. Mm -hmm. So I guess what I'm hearing, what I feel like I'm hearing is that it may actually be very hard for the lay person who's not well-versed in research methods and, and statistical analysis to fully interpret and be able to apply a research paper. And so there, I guess there must, they need to kind of find a trusted person who... So therefore this podcast needs to be here. Needs to be here. Correct. That's why yeah. we're here. We've just found the evidence for our podcast. <laughs> but what you might do is go, I now need to read the conversation article or the childbirth connection article or Rebecca Deck has done a fantastic thing on induction of labour because they're going to explain They, I trust them and they're going to explain it to me in a way that I'm going to grasp much yeah. easier than talking about confidence intervals and statistical significance. Right. So it's kind of like finding, you know, when you find a care provider that you trust, you almost have to find a researcher that you trust yeah. to accept their level of interpretation on the body of research. And Actually, never trust anyone completely. Yeah. If I could say that in a way that's not negative, always listen to your gut, mm -hmm. always think about what matters to you. And at the end of the day, if you're with somebody who is worth your trust they will let that happen once they have provided you the information so mm -hmm. at the end of the day it's it's your choice you know you've got to make that choice no expert however trusted they are has the right to overrule that so mm -hmm. we might look at morbidity and mortality which are really really important and should always mm -hmm. be I call that the floor but you don't stop at the floor Women deserve more than the floor. They deserve more than the basics of care, which is to emerge alive. They should also thrive. They should more than survive. They should thrive. You know, they should transform. So we focus on that. And meanwhile, over here, we have, as shown in our best survey, 29% of women considering their birth traumatic. And then the ripples that come from mm. that, and it's not all physical. Most of it is psychological. Most of it is the way they're talked to, treated, or not listened to. So if we want to stay safe legally, we will listen to women. Yeah. And if we want to improve care, we absolutely need to listen to women. Can we? I want to loop back as well to something that we mentioned earlier about policy. And B, you just brought it up again yeah. about hospital policy. Most maternity care services that are in a hospital they're based on the uses use of policy so they'll write a policy and that's what all the care providers in that facility are expected to work towards and Hannah you said that that on average policies are 17 years behind the evidence now evidence takes 17 years to get into practice but right. but we are reducing that 
Okay. So it's more like 10 now. Sure. So is it entirely possible that if you're getting policy-based care that you're not getting evidence-based care? No, because there is, you know, it's not like our body fundamentally changes in 10 years. So if you're testing a medication or you're testing a, a vaccine or you're testing a, 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 a you know, a, something that's an intervention and that intervention's the same today as it was then, we couldn't, we don't need to then every five years redo a huge randomised trials that cost massive amount of money. And we don't need to put people through not getting the medication when we already know it's effective. So we have to think about when we do research too, that we don't want to hold stuff away from people because they have to have that in a randomised trial. You get it, you don't get it. We don't want to do that if we actually know that it works. But that doesn't stop people then saying, okay, we've now added something more to this medication, so we're now going to redo another trial. So I don't, I mean, people physiologically don't change dramatically. Um, it depends on the intervention. So an example of that is um, CTG monitoring. You know, we introduced that long before anyone just did a trial on it. Everyone thought it was a great idea. We did about 20 years later, we did trials on it, and trial after trial after trial after trial has told us it's a jolly useless piece of equipment if unless you are incredibly high risk because we don't know what we're looking at. We get it wrong all the time. And by putting it on a woman, we increase the cesarean section rate and we have minimal outcome, a minimal effect on the baby's outcome. So I don't think we need yet another CTG trial to tell us whether or not. Yes, we might need one on EEG or on oxygen saturation, which is another component. But we should also move our research on to mm. things that really need to have that evidence shown, if that makes well, sense. Well, I guess the other question is that, yes, we've got all this evidence about CTGs not being beneficial yet you know when a woman presents to hospital you can almost guarantee she's going to be offered a ctg at some point in her care not even offered so many women have a continuous monitoring as low risk but you also know, so many women mission are not made, are, are made high risk because they mm. are induced so if you start to induce someone and you put up oxytocin you know you, they're no longer low risk. So we've actually created a whole bunch of risk, which means now we need the technology because what we're doing to them is very, very dangerous. So if, we were, if we're really going to talk honestly to women about induction of labour, we need to tell them that it's probably a two- or three-day period here. You'll come in overnight, you will be in a, in a noisy antenatal ward, you'll probably get very little sleep, and then you'll niggle and niggle, and then the next morning you go down to the labour ward where someone will try to break your waters, then they'll put up a drip. Now, that drip is not your natural body's oxytocin. It's going to be much more painful, which means you're probably going to need an epidural. You need a monitor on because that drip is actually very dangerous to your baby and we need to check we're not doing any damage. You need a catheter in your bladder now because you can't pee and you're going to never get off that bed. Now, if we honestly told women everything involved in induction, and I've heard people say it's no different to a normal labour, if we're really honest about that, how many women would want? the induction because what they tell us post-birth and this is the birth trauma research that we're looking at now they tell us I had no idea no one really explained it to I wouldn't do it again if I had my time over so to to bring it back again to research um so Hannah 
Uh, is there anything else you think would be super valuable for people to know about accessing and using evidence-based research? Look, don't idolise it too much. It's a great guide, but ultimately you need to work out what's right for you. You need to develop relationships with your provider so that you do develop trust because the trusting relationship both benefits the woman and the midwife because the midwife's invested in you and you become trusting of your provider. And one of the big differences is when you have continuity of midwifery care with that midwife provides the pregnancy care, is the one at the birth and does the postnatal care, is that that midwife is going to be at that birth and is going to be picking up those pieces and so they become really invested in making sure that you get the best birth and that you don't have the repercussions in the postnatal period. So that's why I think the best thing to do is relationship-based care. Whatever the model is that you're most aligned to, you got to think about what you want. If you really do want to to lie back and have intervention and hand over all choice and control, then you might make a different decision to if you really want to be, you know, part of this birth with your choices and your, you know, alternative, well, I shouldn't even call them alternative, but if you want, you know, things that are not in the mainstream system, you might make a very, very different decision. So it's not about judging women. I don't think it's about whether women are right or wrong. The evidence there is a, is is there to be a a great servant to us, but unfortunately it's been turned into a, a master with a great whip that goes across our backs and it's time to stop that. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much, Hannah. We just really wanted to understand from you how do we access research? And I think what I'm hearing is that it's pretty tricky for anybody without access to a full database, but there are some great people in the space who are bringing research to people like evidence-based birth and they actually have a great podcast I could plug their podcast and our podcast and a great website and membership system I mean Rachel Reed's website Dr Sarah Wickham uh Dr Kirsten Small on small talk all those yeah great things with CTG Cochrane database of systematic reviews I'll link all of these as well you know, the Midwives Cauldron podcast is some mm-hmm. really great evidence-based stuff. Hopefully we present ourselves as an evidence-based, trustworthy podcast over time as well. And I know my personal Instagram is focused on delivering research, evidence-based research. Obviously anything Hannah puts up on her social medias is always research-based as well. So, Except for Funny Fridays. Oh, Hannah's got funny Fridays, of course. But, you it's know. It's not evidence-based. Some of it's pretty spot on, though, I have to say. I do like funny Fridays. Well, I think we've, I think we've done it. I think we've done. Yeah, I've done it. Answered the question. And that's what we can offer people. We'll put up um, a list of what people can refer to. So if you want to get up. If you want to get the emails and access to all the evidence from all the podcasts, jump on the mailing list on Mel's website and subscribe to that and you'll get it. And thank you, Hannah, so much for your time. And all the work you guys do because, quite honestly, when we've asked women where do they get their information, podcasts are really rising up. Mm. Huge. We've just stepped into the the pool of. You are the future. Well, that's frightening. Oh, isn't we're amazing we're epic <laughs> should be the future and we are starting a revolution or continuing one i'm not sure 
I continue. As long as you don't storm the capital. <laughs> we may. I can't promise anything. We may storm the capital. What's, where's the capital? Oh, I don't know. Is, is it worth storming? Probably. No, not worth no, no. I feel like it's Hunger Games. That's Hunger Game language. Yes, it's very Hunger Game language, isn't it? I know, but oh, storming the capital oh. sounds fun. <laughs> oh, thank you. Cut. Thanks, Hannah. Thanks so much, Hannah. That's okay. It's lovely to see you both. Honestly, yeah. it's um, really it makes nice me kind of keep on feeling like you know there is success here. But well, well thanks, Hannah. This I care. This keep podcast. going with the wonderful work you're doing. It's really great. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, Fee, at coreandfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah! How's your lovely mum? Are you talking about well, yeah, yeah, you've got a lovely mum too. But <laughs> no, but people, if, if we're still, people are still listening to this, my mum, I took my mum to the ICM conference in 2014 yeah. in Prague and she we was pole dancing her. with Anne Kinnear. She <gasps> got drunk with all like the uh, midwifery academics and Hannah was there and um, everyone loved mum and wanted to make her a midwife. It was so beautiful because, uh, yeah, I just, yeah, it was really, really special to have mum there. And Mel's got a lovely mum too. And you know what's really lovely to see is how important strong enabling mums are when you look at the two of you and you know that you had mums that said you can do anything, you go out and get it, girl. Look at what happens. Yeah, yeah, a bang. End on that. That's perfect. End on that. (laughs) The rebellion has begun.